This podcast was previously recorded on November 9th, 2022. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, product architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, how are you? Hey Ryan. Doing good. Doing good. It's nice to see you guys. Nice to see you too. Um, we don't we don't have Parth this week, unfortunately. Um, I, I guess, you know, we had we had the band back together in the bus for for a couple of weeks and um and are dispersed again, yet again. Um, but uh, if you're listening to this, you've likely just come off, if you're in the United States at least, celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday. So for today's uh, podcast, we're, we're really excited to have Chris Kuyper, Director of Research at Fidelity Digital Assets, um, our first guest here to talk about our 2022 um, Institutional Investor Digital Assets Survey, um, which we've, we've run for four years now, um, and we have been able to kind of derive really valuable insights out of that survey. So Chris, really happy to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here, Ryan. Can you just provide, you know, a quick overview of what the survey is, who participates, um, and why it's so important um, to the industry? And Chris, if you do a great job today, you know, it's sort of an audition to replace Parth. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. So as you mentioned, we've been doing this for a number of years, since 2018. So this 2022 survey is our fourth annual consecutive survey now. And it was really, as you said, conducted to better understand institutional investors' perception of and approach and adoption to digital assets. Assets. And we've expanded over the years. We've added more regions. We've expanded the question set. So we try to keep the original ones consistent so we can see trends, but we've also expanded it as the whole digital asset space has been expanded as well. So just a little bit about it, kind of the methodology and what we do. So we survey over a thousand respondents. This year we had a little over 1,052 from three different regions. So US, uh, European investors, and Asian investors. And these are institutional investors uh, that are not our clients, but institutional investors all over the world. And the breakdown is really between financial advisors is a big group, high net worth investors, family offices. Uh, then we have crypto native hedge funds and venture capital funds, as well as traditional hedge funds. And then we have your kind of classic pension, defined benefit pension endowment foundations as well. So a nice mix of institutional investors, uh, a very large data set, and something that we can extract a lot of uh, interesting insights from that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think you mentioned this, but it, it's a blind study, right? So double blind study. So we don't Correct. necessarily know the respondents, and they don't know that it's on behalf of Fidelity. Correct. Yes, and so the the field work is done through um, online surveys as well as phone calls. And what was really interesting was, even though we've been doing this four years in a row now, this year was the first year that the fielding was done during 
this significant bear market. So the previous years, we either were in a bull market or flat at best. This year, the fielding was done from January 1, 2022 to June 24 of 2022. So basically the first six months of 2022. If you remember, you know, we were off of all-time highs of November of 2021, where we hit that all-time high. So by the time the fielding started, we were already down 30%. And by the time the the research and fielding was was ended, we were, you know, already hitting that 65-70% drawdown from all-time highs. So very interesting that we could get results during this period. And quite surprisingly, as we'll, we'll talk about, that we saw such uh, positive trends despite the bear market. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I, we were we were a little surprised, right, to see um, you know c- basically a, con- a continued uptick um, in the sentiment, uh, positive sentiment around digital asset ownership, despite what is I would say the most significant headwinds that the industry has, you know, recently experienced, um, if not ever experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jack can weigh in here as well. He's he's well versed in some of these trends, but just. To start off on a very macro global point of view, positive perception of digital assets increased year over year, uh, as well as things like um, those who uh, um, are planning to allocate, as well as those that have actually allocated. So we saw this across all regions. The only region we saw a bit of a decline in terms of positive perception was the Asia region that went from 63% down to 60 But a few things we like to point out here, number one, Asia started from a very high base. Uh, they're pretty well out on the curve in terms of adoption already. So it's, it gets harder to go up from a high base. And while it is a decline uh, directionally, you know, in terms of percentage points, that was only three percentage points uh, over one year. Statistically, that just isn't significant enough for us to really say uh, that was really, really a, a negative or a huge drawdown there. And, and Chris, if I could just ask, even though it's a slight decline for Asia, is, isn't Asia still one of the highest regions in terms of positive perception of digital assets? Yeah. So that high base, they've they've been highest. They were 63% last year. They're 60% this year. That's still higher than the other two regions. So I'm just looking at it here. Europe was 51% this past year and US was 39%. So yeah, directionally down, but still the, the vast leader and majority there. Yeah. And Asia was first to mobile payments. And so I think it's it's sort of this idea of digital money uh, was was maybe more uh, inherent in, in Asian societies than it has been uh, or, or had been in the United States and in Western Europe. Yeah, and we, we won't get into it here, but just some of the other data too, like they're way out on the curve in terms of DeFi and yield and staking and all these kind of things that are pretty foreign to say US investors. Uh, they were already there probably years ago. So, so before we kind of jump into, you know, attitudes, I think it, it probably would be helpful just to kind of take a step back and think about, you know, where these institutions are at in terms of their journey towards ownership. Do you mind just providing just a, a quick rundown on which institutions are most likely to currently buy or invest in digital assets versus the ones that are, haven't really, um, I guess, taken the plunge at this point? Yeah, I, I can jump in there. So so what I would say is it, it's been consistent uh, throughout the survey for the most part, uh, as well as I, I think Chris would agree anecdotally, uh, you know, we're, we're going out there as a research arm for Fidelity Digital Assets, speaking with various uh, institutions from advisors to, to you know, larger um, institutions like endowments and, and um, 
you know, pension funds. And, and I would say the conversations sort of tend to align with the data uh, where earlier in the learning curve, earlier in adoptions and, and maybe, you know, simpler in, in questions about you know, allocation or thinking about the asset class is the larger uh, endowments and like true institutions, whereas the sort of smaller shops, the family offices and advisors that are really a, a form of intermediated, you know, high net worth and ultra high net worth investors tend to be maybe further along the the adoption curve or further along the education curve. Um, and I think that that's not necessarily a coincidence, right? We, we sort of talked about it during last year's survey results of if you're a smaller organization, you have less decision makers in the room. And so it's potentially easier to, to be able to get to the point of actually onboarding with a, a custodian uh, and being able to make an allocation. Whereas these larger, uh, very regulated entities um, tend to have lower adoption rates and also just sort of, again, anecdotally in the conversations tend to be sort of, uh, you know, earlier in their their education or, or understanding of the space. And, and we see that bear out in the data again this year. Yeah. And just to put some data points on what Jack just said, uh, the high net worth investor, 82% said they currently buy or invest in digital assets. Financial advisors, 73%. But on the other end of that that barbell is traditional hedge funds, 7%. Uh, endowments and foundations, 6%. Pension funds, 5%. They're all very mid-single digits, right? And so exactly what Jack was talking about, uh, you kind of see the two, the two extremes that kind of correlate with size, investment size committees, bureaucracy, regulation, red tape, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and presumably risk management, right? And I, I guess maybe you would bucket that in, but I think it's probably worth calling calling that specifically out. Certainly. And there's there's just more decision makers in the room. Yeah. There's you know, more people involved and, and more uh, signatures that have to be on the on the bottom line of, of being able to you know make some sort of a big asset class allocation decision. Uh, I would add one thing uh, additionally while we're on this topic of perception and adoption is we did see some interesting movement in the data in terms of uh, perception of specifically Bitcoin versus perception of digital assets uh, more broadly. And we sort of asked those questions intentionally separately uh, just to gauge uh, sort of you know, what do these investors think of Bitcoin and what do they think of the entire you know, space of what digital assets has to offer. Uh, and we saw, you know, sort of this interesting leveling of the playing field, so to speak, where Bitcoin did have, you know, uh, a slight lead in terms of its positive or, or neutral perception uh, relative to its negative perception amongst these investors we were surveying. Uh, and it, it appeared over the last year that digital assets more broadly sort of made up the, the gap that it had from prior years. Um, and I think that, you know, exciting developments like Ethereum's merge, uh, as well as other ecosystems um, coming into the fold over the past year or two, has sort of brought in uh, this idea of maybe there is more than just the monetary application of Bitcoin uh, that this space has to offer. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great point. Jack, one of the things I was thinking about as I was looking at the study results and and seeing that and just your comment about the perception of digital assets almost becoming or really reaching equilibrium with the uh, perception of Bitcoin. You know, if you've got essentially 81% of the survey respondents believing that there's a place for digital assets in their portfolio, 
we didn't break down the granularity of what type of digital asset outside of Bitcoin. So it's possible that within the, the broader crypto definition, people might be looking at things that have utility like stablecoin. And it might be that they can do some things that they might not be able to do otherwise. You know, if it's talking about traditional payment rails, they may not have access 24 by 7 by 365. But when they have some other alternatives, that could be giving them additional value or speed to react. So that might be part of it. Just an observation on my part. Yeah, absolutely. And I can even speak personally from like my interest in the space over the past two years. It really began with an understanding of Bitcoin and the monetary applications. Um, but I, I would say it's expanded far beyond that. And so I would, if I was showing, you know, my own survey data, if you asked me this question consecutively over the past three or four years, I think you would see a similar trend uh, in my own interests for what it's worth. Yeah, I, I would also just add one more thing that I found interesting, and I, I don't want to to belabor the point, but throughout the duration that we've been running these surveys, you know, the past four years, there's been a tremendous amount of progress made in terms of evolution of the markets, different rails, different DeFi applications, different um, decentralized applications that are giving people better opportunities to engage with this type of uh, type of market. So, um, I guess in in some ways. I think there's a correlation to that evolution of the market with the perception of value. And, but um, it's, it's really interesting that, that against the backdrop of a bear market that we saw this continued uh, increasing um, positive perception. Yeah. And so I think that that's a nice lead into um, the next section, which is, you know, what these institutions find appealing about investments in digital assets. So can you just provide, um, and you know, Chris, Jack, you know, other of you feel free to chime in here, what kind of the leaders are there as we think about, you know, the, the value proposition, or even I would say the, in the investment thesis around investing in digital assets, because I think like, this is a, this is an area, um, that's particularly interesting again, given the fact that this was, this was run in, in a bear market. Right. And so I think, you know, traditionally maybe what would have been a bigger attractor is, is less so now. Um, but curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just run through the top six here in order, high potential upside, 43%, innovative technology play, number two, enabling decentralization, number three, free from government inter intervention, uncorrelated to other assets, and then macro inflation upside. So those are the top reasons. Now, where we saw big changes was uh, a big uptick uh, in some of the lesser ones, but they had the biggest changes. Participation in DeFi uh, had a big jump. Yield opportunities had a big jump. And then everything else was about the same, except obviously uncorrelated to other assets. That went from 37% saying that last year to only 25% this year. Now, no surprise, right? <laughs> that that uh, we were sitting at a 0.8 you know, correlation coefficient to equities, risk assets for the past year or so when this study was done in the first half of 2022. So that wasn't surprising to me. But what I found surprising was that uncorrelated to other assets, even at 25%, respondents saying this, it was still the fifth highest cited uh, appeal of digital assets. So to me, these are sophisticated investors. They are certainly aware of how correlated these assets have become, right? That has not escaped them. So for them to still cite that and for it to be number five tells me that they still believe this uncorrelated story either longer term 
or in a broader sense or something like that. I mean, it's a little speculation on my part because I can't assume that, but it just leads me to believe that they're obviously aware of it, but they're still going out of the way to to cite this as an appealing thing. I think that's really interesting. The the piece that um, maybe you can shed a little bit more light on, the innovative technology play. I think all of the other buckets, you know, speak for themselves. But when we when we say when we say innovative technology play, what what do we we really mean and what do we think it means to the investor? It's a good question. It's you know, in its pure form, that was just the response. So what I'll say is a bit of my hypothesis around it. And and Jack, I think you can chime in here as well. Anecdotally talking to investors, they kind of look at it through their own experience, right? And so if they've lived through like .com or something, they look at this as like, oh, it's another technology that's coming to market and I want to have exposure. And so they talk about just having exposure to this new technology, even if they don't fully or completely understand how it's going to look or how it's going to evolve, but they know that they want some exposure. To not have any exposure would be a mistake, right? Um, And so whether they have a more built-out thesis of, owning the rails or owning the the base layer and stuff getting built on top of it. I think that depends <laughs> with the investor you're speaking to, but I think overall that's kind of the idea behind that response. Yeah. The, the only thing I would add to Chris's comment is I think it's interesting that you see a slight uptick in, you know, folks finding it interesting from that innovative technology side, while at the same time you see the decrease uh, in, in seeing it as being an uncorrelated asset. Uh, and to me, it's like, what has been the narrative over the past year? It's been sort of like, look at where the NASDAQ went. And I could probably tell you over that last week, if the NASDAQ was down, Bitcoin was probably down because the two were so highly correlated to one another. And so I think, you know, again, sort of the data showing uh, sentiment shifting around what is Bitcoin? What are digital assets? Are they this macro inflation hedge? Well, that hasn't necessarily borne out. I I still have sort of a, an argument in my mind of I think it's a little more complicated than just the the CPI number and we're seeing you know financial tightness uh, in the system and it makes sense that maybe something like Bitcoin is facing headwinds even though inflation is high but regardless I think there is this shift in mindset of oh these things are trading like growth equities are trading and so they're going to be more correlated to those so therefore you know, it's, it's more interesting from the tech play perspective uh, on the tech in these these ecosystems and maybe less interesting from the diversification standpoint. One of the things I was thinking about just really quick on that, I was looking at the report and saying, okay, where else are there 10 percentage point swings? And in both cases, they were favorable 21 versus 22. So people having an improved perception was the ability to participate in DeFi and yield opportunities. And I think that's really speaking to that, that evolution of... Um, better experiences, better access to different applications against a backdrop in which we had lower performing equity markets, but we've also had many years uh, up until recently where interest rates were pretty low and people were seeking yield. And this innovative technology gave them an opportunity to access yield, even if it isn't a, a native digital asset that had yet to be converted back to fiat. Absolutely. The thing I would add to that as well is last year's data set. I remember you know, very distinctly when we were writing the report, it was clear Asian investors uh, throughout, you know, throughout all the survey data 
had more understanding of the the complex uh, nuances, were further along the education curve, and they were the only subset uh, of investors broken down by region that showed really any material interest in DeFi and yield opportunities and like some of these things that aren't just you know aren't just Bitcoin, right, or, or just the very beginnings of this asset class. And I think what you're seeing in throughout this study is like this evolution of understanding of all investors in all regions because now you do see the pickup in interest in DeFi and yield opportunities because those are sort of like secondary or tertiary questions that you're asking. First, you're wrapping your mind around it and saying, is this even a legitimate asset class or not? And then from there, you start to understand, okay, I understand Bitcoin. Then I start to ask questions around what is Ethereum. And then you ask about the, the applications built on top of it. And you're sort of seeing that seep into the, the data. And who are the the individuals that were most interested in DeFi? I believe if we if we break it down by segment, it was those that were further along the adoption curve. It was the financial advisors and family offices that showed the interest throughout this data. Uh, and so again, it's just sort of the data showing that over time there is more interest and there's more interest in the entire ecosystem. Yeah. What I was going to add is I think obviously we're calling out participation in DeFi as its own bucket, but I, I do think like there's an opportunity for those things. You know, there's a, there's a fair amount of overlap there, particularly with what we saw this year and all of the kind of decentralized infrastructure and applications that we saw really start delivering real utility to investors, right? I think that infrastructure is also obviously innovation and technology. And so that might be another driver as to why we saw, again, significant growth um, in that category as well. So we've done a good job highlighting kind of what some of the key takeaways of the report were. Obviously, overall, fairly positive story for digital assets. But I do want to just maybe take a couple of minutes to talk about some of the obstacles, right? Because, you know, I think that's also important um, to note um, and acknowledge as we think about, um, you know, where we're going in the coming year. And so do you mind just providing um, an overview of of maybe like the top five obstacles or, or barriers to investing? Yeah, so this is one that we've kept consistent over the years, so it's it's fun to see how it changes. But the top ones haven't changed a whole lot. Number one, not surprisingly, price volatility. Number two, lack of fundamentals to gauge appropriate value. That's followed by security concerns by institutions, concerns around market manipulation, complexity, specifically difficult to understand by the client, uh, security concerns by the client, and then uh, regulatory classification concerns of certain coins. So there's a lot more there, uh, but those are the top ones there. And really, you know, when looking at this list, I kind of like to to bucket it out of like, from a research perspective and what we do at Fidelity, what can we address in our research and what can we help people understand versus what can't we control, right? And so price volatility, we've certainly written about this and, and try to get people to understand, you know, it's funny how people put high upside potential as the number one characteristic that they find appealing. But then a lot of people also put price volatility. So (laughs) helping them understand those things have to go together. They're joined at the hip in certain ways. And then, you know, Jack wrote a piece on valuing Bitcoin, for example, to try to address that lack of fundamentals uh, concern or question. Uh, But then some of the other ones, you know, regulatory, we can only do so much at at certain points as well. So that's kind of how we look at this and and use it to set our roadmap of what we are researching and writing about uh, day to day. 
Yeah, and, and the, the the lack of the fundamentals is really interesting, and I think there's there's a tremendous opportunity there. Um, you know, a couple of weeks back, we talked on the podcast about Goldman Sachs's efforts to kind of bring a standard taxonomy or framework um, to different digital assets to help their clients navigate what is a fairly complex industry, right? And I think you know we we, we highlighted at the time that the value proposition for these individual assets are starting to diverge, right? And they have their own unique value proposition, and it's going to be really a matter of helping these um, these you know investors while they're becoming more comfortable with investing or, or thinking about investing the the, the learning journey is still um, you know really important and many of them are still probably at the beginning of that journey so I think helping them understand what they are and the utility that they provide um, is kind of the first step in, in in how you value you know value those assets yeah Ryan, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say Coinmetrics, Goldman Sachs, just, uh, you know, we, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I think that taxonomy is the first step. You have to categorize all of this stuff. And then from there, once you categorize it, we can talk about, you know, how does, how does Bitcoin accrue value? Well, it's inspiring monetary asset. And, uh, you know, what is, uh, uh, what are forms of money, right? We have fiat currency that's, you know, by decree from the government, but we also have monetary premiums embedded in assets like gold. Then we can start to think about like supply and demand curves, uh, of a, of an aspiring money that is, you know, putting forward these different monetary, uh, like traits and like that's Bitcoin in a bucket. And that's a whole, you know, can of worms and conversation, but that's completely different from like, Ethereum post-merge, that's this platform that you can build on top of. And, and now it has, you know, staking rewards that look like a cash flow. And so there's like so many different things going on. And so it's, it's so hard to wrap your mind around valuing an asset and you have to be able to, to value an asset in order to, to, you know, to allocate towards it. Right. Especially for a lot of institutional investors to be able to justify it. They, they say, I, if I don't know what it's worth, you know, Bitcoin could be pro- providing a lot of value, but I don't know if it's worth a dollar or a million dollars. I think you're right, Jack. It's funny because I, I get a couple of questions often uh, when people are saying, I'm, I'm not sure how to value it. I always get, can I apply a discounted cash flow to this? The answer is basically no. You could to something like Ethereum, right? But yeah, and exactly. The applications so, on top of Ethereum for some of them. So it's just like everything's so different. You need the taxonomy. Exactly. So you get into like the settlement layer, the base layer, then you get into decentralized applications and you look at utility and people are paying for block space and you have to explain what block space is. So you, you really get into um, a lot more depth of a discussion. To your point, people need to understand not just the asset, but how the technology works to some extent in order to figure out how to how to think about the asset. But the one that I, I always come back to that that you also highlighted, Chris, is the regulatory classification. And I, I do think to some extent, my, my own hypothesis is that in Asia and in Europe, where things are more clear from an investor perspective, that's less, that may be less of a barrier. Maybe that's a little bit why we're seeing that drop from the top five. It's still, I think maybe number seven uh, in terms of those barriers or uh, obstacles. But I do think that the fact that digital assets have become part of the mainstream conversation that you have um, legislators and regulators all over the world really starting to uh, tackle some of these questions is a net positive. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. So, all right, I, I think we, we've, we've done a pretty good job 
kind of covering most of current state of ownership, what the attitudes towards digital assets is, certainly what some of the obstacles to adoption are. Um, but when we think about the role in, of digital assets in the portfolio, what are we hearing from these institutions around how they're thinking about working working it into their portfolios? Yeah, so we did ask, how do you believe digital assets should be a part of your portfolio? And they can answer this a number of ways in terms of it's an alternative asset class to them or it should be its own independent asset class. But to me, the, the first pass is just interesting to see the option of it should not be part of a portfolio. So, for example, if you look at the U.S., where we have the longest running data for a region, 26% of respondents said it should not be part of a portfolio this year. Now, that, that sounds like a big chunk, but if you go back just four years, this was at 50%. So we've gone from a clear majority of institutional investors saying digital assets shouldn't even be in your portfolio to a clear minority position here. So to me, that, that speaks to a lot of what we've seen just over the past four years to begin with. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, and, and so, when we think about the breakdown, is there anything to note? You know, geographically, are there any anomalies, or has it been kind of linear when we think about, I guess, the sentiment towards um, having it in your portfolio? Yeah. So similar to the perception question, Europe only fourteen percent said it should not be in your portfolio, and only sixteen percent of Asian investors said it should not be in your portfolio. Now we don't have as long of running data since we added those regions in later, but again, this matches with some of the other stuff we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. And and there's there's sort of a I guess you would say an outlier within Asia considering it as you know, we, we sort of have three uh, major options in terms of how would you categorize it? Do you categorize it as a part of your uh, alternative asset class bucket? Is it its own independent asset class uh, or is it uh, part of a real asset portfolio? So things like real estate, uh, you know, sort of like a, a bearer instrument that isn't somebody else's liability. And Asia uh, had a response rate of 20% uh, responding as thinking it's it's part of a real asset portfolio, whereas, you know, Europe was at 10, U.S. was at 5. Uh, and so, you know, double or, or in the U.S.'s case, uh, quadruple uh, what other, you know, regions were saying. And so, there again, there's just sort of different perceptions of what this asset class is in different societies. I'm glad you called that out because I was looking at that. And when I, I see real asset portfolio, I see real estate as an example. But I, I also think about it from the context of there are security token markets that are evolving in different places, or we've seen um, over time different efforts to tokenize uh, assets like metals. And it is interesting because I think in many parts, you get a little bit of a window into the type of culture, cultural dynamics across different geographies when you look into this type of granularity as a question. So I really like that it was broken down into whether it's part of an alternative asset class, its own, or um, part of real assets. On top of that as well, if I just think of like the currency regimes that these investors live in, like the US, only 5% consider it part of a real asset portfolio, Europe 10%, right? And, and what do you have as the currency? You know, you have the two largest currencies in the world, you have the globally dominant US dollar, uh, that's sort of this unquestioned reserve currency, you know, up until now, for the past, you know, whatever, 50 plus years, uh, you could argue 100 years. And, and so, it, whereas in Asia, 
right? You, you have different currencies um, that often are looked at on a, a competing basis uh, relative to the dollar of, you know, sort of devaluing uh, their currencies. And so, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that you see those investors viewing this as you know, part of a real asset portfolio that, that they could see as you know, a, a hedge against their currency, potentially, whereas investors in the U.S. don't necessarily see it that way. They, they see it more as this alternative or independent asset class. Yeah. And I don't think we mentioned it, but, um, you know, all of this information is available on a report that's on the, the Fidelity Digital Assets, um, what, you know, research site. So, you know, highly encourage our listeners to go out and, and find that report there. But um, what's next for this data? Yeah. So this first report that we put out is really high level. A lot of the stuff that we wanted to get out quickly uh, to, to tell people about, but there's a lot more there that we haven't gone through with a fine tooth comb yet. So we're going to keep digging, looking through this data, uncovering more insights, and we'll be revealing that in a few weeks. Great. We'll definitely follow up once that's uh, that's available. And um, so, Chris, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was this was really interesting, and I think really valuable for for our listeners. Um, and you know, Jason, Jack, thanks again for um, a great discussion, and we will uh, see you all next week. Have a good rest of your week. The research survey for the Fidelity Digital Assets 2022 Institutional Investor Digital Assets Study was led by Fidelity Consulting and Strategic Insights with Fidelity Digital Assets and the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Conducted by Coalition Greenwich, the research followed a similar methodology to the previous three years, comprised of a detailed survey to better understand the overall attitudes and behaviors of institutional investors as it relates to digital assets. Fieldwork was conducted between January 2nd, 2022 and June 24th, 2022, with a total of 1,052 blind interviews of professionals from a variety of firms completed via a mix of online surveys and one-to-one phone sessions. As in previous years, the survey spanned a variety of high net worth individuals and institutional investor segments, including financial advisors, family offices, crypto hedge and venture funds, traditional hedge funds, endowments and foundations, as well as pension funds and defined benefit plans. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.